Let me ask you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Galatians, chapter 4. Let's pray. Father, help us that we would yield to you and worship you through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Count your many blessings. Name them one by one. Now, we, we all know the song. We've probably taught it to our children, learned it when we were kids. Maybe over the past week you've been doing this. Maybe you've been able to consider over this last week some people, relationships you have that you're thankful for, material blessings, personal health benefits that you have, spiritual blessings. We, we think of these things at appropriate times, maybe not as often as we ought to. Through the course of our lives, uh, we can be torn down and worn down by the difficulties that we face, ne negative elements of life and our experiences, and sometimes these negative parts of life overshadow in our minds the many blessings that we've received. Well, this morning as we consider Galatians chapter 4, we want to see the blessings that are ours through justification by faith in Jesus Christ. We all know that the just shall live by faith. We know that, that we're justified by faith alone in Christ alone. We, we, we're familiar with all the phraseology and, and we believe it. But what I want for us to do over these next few moments that we have together is to really revel, to really rejoice in the blessings that are ours because God justified us through faith in Jesus Christ. We are so, so blessed. We will meditate on this passage for a number of weeks this morning and next week, and then there'll be a week in between. And then on uh, December 18th, we'll, we'll look at it one final time, this section of verses 1 through 7. This morning, we're going to cover a big swath of it, and then we'll kind of hone in on different places next week and then again on the 18th. Galatians 4, beginning in verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. As we consider this glorious passage and the glorious blessings, our desire is to allow these blessings to be so prominent in our minds that we cannot be deterred by the challenges that want to suck the life out of us. You've, you've had those challenges. Sometimes you just think, this, really, this is my life? This is where I'm at? Still dealing with this? And what we want to do is so understand this passage and so appreciate what God has done 
that the glorious blessings that this passage in God offers us so overshadow all those things that we say, this is nothing. This, this is what life is about. This is what life is about. The blessings. Now, chapter 3 ends on a note about sonship. That we have sonship through faith in Jesus Christ. <laughs> chapter 4 continues this discussion. And as we enter into chapter 4, we want to note the first blessing that we come across is that we have an inheritance. We have an inheritance. Again, verse 1. I mean that the heir, so he's talking about this inheritance, as long as he is a child is no different from a slave, though he is what? The owner of everything. Look down at verse 7. For you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then what? An heir through God. So the question is, what do we inherit? What do we inherit? Well, the first thing that comes to mind might be for you, heaven. That is a great inheritance. What is heaven like? What condition of the soul do you covet the most about heaven? I don't want you to think about this. What condition of the soul do you covet the most about heaven? Is it being enveloped in love? Ceaseless love. Without any doubt. You'll never question that love. You'll be inundated, enveloped in that love. Is that the condition of the soul that you covet most about heaven? How about this? Fullness of joy. Joy every second of every day for eternity. That is a condition of the soul. Do you covet that the most about heaven? How about this? Unending peace. No one's cutting you off in heaven. No one is gesturing at you in heaven. Not negative gestures anyway. No one is bickering in heaven, clamoring in heaven. It's all gone. Unending peace. That is a condition of the soul that is part of our inheritance. How about freedom from sin and the guilt of sin? Freedom from the guilt of sin. Now we know we're forgiven. And we don't take that forgiveness lightly. And we don't sin because we're forgiven. No. But when we sin, there is attendant to that sin, the guilt of sin. You will not experience that for one second in heaven. What a blessedness of soul. This is part of our inheritance of heaven. This condition of the soul. One of the problems in our lives that we face is that we are short-sighted. This day is coming, folks. This day when we are unendingly surrounded by peace and love and joy and removal of sin and its guilt. That day is coming. And sometimes we are so stuck in today that we're not enjoying those benefits. We are regularly trying to establish our own little heaven on earth. Don't deny it. Your little heaven looks a little different than my little heaven. But you like to set everything up in your life in such a way that, you know, you can navigate through your day in a way that makes you peaceful and joyful and happy. You're starting, you, you want to set up your own little heaven. And sometimes we try to set it up in a way that is not in accordance with the way God provides it. We want everything to be in place to make our hearts sing. One day, note this, 
one day all competing interests in our soul will be dismantled. All competing interests in our soul will be dismantled. We'll never fight this again. Our minds will be fixed on the right place. We will be fully satisfied. We will have true, eternal contentment. And this is why Paul says, set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth, because that blessedness of soul can be ours, not just in the future, but today. At the end of verse 1, Paul writes, and he's led by the Spirit, and he's using an illustration, but the illustration follows through in reality. He says that he is the owner of everything. That is true about us. We are joint heirs with Christ. The Bible tells us in Psalm 2 that the nations are his inheritance. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that he is heir of all things. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8 that we are joint heirs with him. We are heirs of everything. When we get to heaven, everything we ever thought of, every, ever desired that was pure, is ours. It's ours. You know, we, you've thought about heaven, right? Have you ever wondered, will X be in heaven? Will I miss Y in heaven? Rest assured, if you're a believer, there won't be one thing you're missing in heaven. There won't be one thing you're missing. You won't think, oh, if I could only have a bologna sandwich... What's that other kind? A bratwurst sandwich. I, I, I need a Reuben. None of that. There won't be one lack. This is the, the glory of knowing what God has offered to us. Of all the aspects of our inheritance, there is one portion that stands out above the rest, folks. Remember what God said to Abraham. Abraham, I... I am your exceedingly great reward. And the Bible picks up on that theme. And the Bible writers will write on several occasions throughout the Old Testament, the Lord is my portion. Think about, think about what that means. When you inherit heaven and all the, the stuff of heaven, what you're really inheriting What brings all of that to its fullness is the fact that you are an inheritor, an heir of God himself. God says, I want to give myself to you as a gift. And in fact, he has done such a thing. We've seen it here as we've read it here. Because you remember, when God says, I love you, he gave us his son. He, he laid out his son. He allowed his son to be rejected indeed by men and to bear the cost and the guilt and the wrath of my iniquity. God gave us his son because he was ultimately giving us himself. 
when you think about all the blessings you've had in life, and you've had many, you, you have a, a husband or you have a wife or you have some children, you have some parents, you have grandparents, you have aunts and uncles, things, people that you cherish. You have a, a home that you live in. You have uh, clothes, food, things you, you're thankful for. Of all the things you have, you're an heir of heaven, an heir of God himself. This is a blessing you can count on. It's as sure as anything you could be, anything you could have. This is the inheritance we have. That's the first blessing that we come across here. A second one, and you'll love the wording of this, and we're going to spend some time. This is going to be the bulk of our discussion. We'll be here on this second blessing because I want for us to consider what Paul is driving at and how wonderful this blessing is, and I want us to understand it in its fullness. So the second blessing that is recorded for us here is we have been delivered from the enslaving tutelage of the law. What was the purpose of the law? Well, we know about the purpose of the law. We're gonna, let's cover that in just a moment. Let's read verses 3 through 5. Actually, uh, 1 through 3. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved, enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Look down at verse 5, just the beginning of it. To redeem those who were, what? Under the law. We've been delivered from the enslaving tutelage of the law. Now, there's a, there's a lot that we could talk about here. I'm just to make brief mention of this word elementary principles in verse 3. What's interesting is if you try to study that word elementary principles, what you'll notice is it has a, a, a spiritist element to it. It's not just that there are um, X, Y, and Z law principles. There's actually something underneath that that he is delivering us from, and that is what flows out of basic principles is the bondage that comes from outside forces that, that twists law principles into enslaving principles. So it's not just saying God is delivering us from the law as if the law has bad. What he's saying is he's delivered us from this slavish element of the law that gets twisted and wrapped up by spiritual forces telling you about the bondage that it brings. And it, it, it really handcuffs us. What God is telling us is we don't have to be handcuffed any longer. What, what is the purpose of the law? Well, first of all, it's to reveal our sin. We've talked about this, and so we're not going to retrace those steps. It's also to show us our inability. So the law issues a demand, and we demonstrate very clearly that we don't fulfill that demand. You've experienced this, right? Now, maybe you haven't killed anyone. I hope that you haven't. Maybe you have never committed adultery. I, I hope that you haven't. Maybe you have not been so covetous that you stole something from someone else. I hope that you haven't. But as you go down the whole list of all the laws throughout Old Testament and New Testament, you violated one of them, yay? Yeah? I'm not saying you're proud of it. You just know it. 
James says if you're guilty of one point, you're guilty of all of it. So the law brings us to this point and it shows us our inability. And because it does that, it drives us to Christ because we see something better. So we'll, we'll, that, that is a constant of our discussion. There's a third element of what the law does, and sometimes we forget it. Sometimes we, for, we neglect this portion of the law's purpose because we're quick to say, well, we're not under it anymore, and so let's just be quick to dismiss it. But the law has another purpose as well, and it's to demonstrate a standard of holiness and righteousness. To demonstrate a standard of holiness and righteousness. Let's think about it like this. The law was like an elementary teacher. What is the elementary teacher? Well, the elementary teacher is laying out instructions for academics. One plus one equals, two plus two equals, two times two equals, six times six equals. Now, I know the answers to those. I hope that you do as well. We're laying out these elementary principles. And, and so you, you're learning addition and subtraction and multiplication and division, and then you move on to algebra. Maybe you uh, proceed a little bit further into geometry, maybe a little further into other forms, other advanced mathematics like trigonometry and calculus. What do all of these individual components do for you? Well, they, they, they make you smarter. They give you education. They, they, they're informing your mind. What's the purpose of them? Just so you can add? Well, sometimes for instance, if you go to the store and the person, their cash register is not working, if you'll notice, most of the people that you would encounter don't know how to give you change. They know how to now, sometimes because it says, okay, this is the amount of change. Sometimes, I don't know if you've seen this, have you ever seen it where it actually tells you how many quarters, how many dimes, how many nickels, and how many pennies? I've seen that on a, on a little screen. It's like... Man, we've, re we've really come to this point in our society that people can't figure out how to use change. It's not good. That's not the subject. <laughs> We're going to move on from that. What is the point? Sometimes it's so we can learn to add and subtract, right? But oftentimes it's to build layers in so that when a person goes on to college and gets some more layers put on top of that, they can come out of college as an engineer, and they can apply all these principles that they've learned to the curve of a road or the arc of a bridge or where in this building should a column be to make sure that it doesn't come collapsing down. They utilize all these little basic elements that they've learned and it's, it's plied into a trade so that then they can apply it. Do they have to go back and learn basic math? Probably not. Does he apply basic math? Do you need to go relearn basic math? Do you apply basic math? The law, while it is no longer enslaving over us, it doesn't mean that it has no place for us, right? It doesn't mean we don't say, well, I've, of course, I am no longer under the law. I can covet all I want. I can covet my neighbor's wife. I can cover, covet my neighbor's donkey. Is, is that what it means? You, you, we're no longer under the law. We're good to go. I can steal their donkey all I want. I can lie like a, like a banshee. I lie anytime I want. There's no longer is there a, a command that says, do not bear false witness. Uh, I, I can worship another god because I don't have a law that tells me, worship the Lord your God and him only. I, I, there's no law anymore. Sometimes this is how people act when they say that the law is no longer in operation. 
what we understand is that when the realization of the promises came, what is that realization? Jesus Christ, it was time to move beyond the law. The law shows us the righteous standard and our inability to meet that standard in a maintained way. Jesus Christ continuously, till the very end, met every standard of the law. And through justification, we all know what the word justification means. It's the removal of our sin, that's mercy, and the addition of righteousness, Jesus' righteousness, that's grace. That's what justification is, the removal of our sin and the addition of Jesus' righteousness. How does that justification come? Through faith in Jesus Christ. When the realization of the promises came, who is Jesus Christ, justification united us together with him, and his righteous record became our righteous record. We no longer have a sense of failure and the law's looming disapproval. Because of justification through faith in Jesus Christ, we no longer have a sense of failure and of the law's looming disapproval. Look, please, with me at Galatians chapter 5. We're going to come to this in a few months. In Galatians chapter 5, we are very familiar, we are very familiar with Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The Bible says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Listen carefully. Against such things there is no law. Against such things there is no law. Does this mean that the law has no application in the life of the believer? Well, if it were to have no application, how would we know what to do when God says in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct? How would we know? If there's no law, how do we know what holiness is? The Bible says this in Romans chapter 7 and verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Oh, by no means. The, the old King James says, God forbid. The, the Greek says, may, may, genoita. It means, let it never be. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? No! Yet, if it had been for the, uh, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. This is so important. What is the purpose of all the commandments? Now, for, for a believer, okay, we're not under the law. We've been taken from slavish tutelage to the law, and now we're not under it anymore. What are all the purposes of all these commandments? Since we're not under the law, we know that the commandments are not a means of holiness. Rather, the commandments show us, listen carefully, the commandments show us what grace produces in the life of the believer. The law does not sit over us like a taskmaster promising judgment for disobedience. Did you hear that? The law does not sit over us like a taskmaster with his whip promising judgment 
for disobedience. Why? Because the law has been fulfilled. In us, through Christ, the record has been set straight. It's more like, and I really want you to, to, to really hone in here, it's more like a friend. It's like a friend who counsels us with truth and watches. When we walk contrary to the counsel, our friend does not condemn, but mourns the challenges we'll face. For instance, the Bible says, and it's a law, the reason I say it's law is because it's a command. Anywhere you see a command, you have law. The Bible commands fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. That's a command, so that's law. The law comes in and says, fathers, you can't do this. You should not do this. This is, this is bad. As the law watches, it knows the long-range effects of violating its principle. What's the long-range effect of violating the principle of fathers do not provoke your children to wrath? All right, you can get your children to conform through wrath, if that's the way you choose. You can get them to conform. They'll do what, what you say because you're making them. There's times where that's needed, right? But um, if, if you're provoking them to wrath, what ends up happening is when they're no longer under your direct supervision, this is what they do when you talk. That's in other words, no thank you, I'm all set. You no longer have any influence over them. The law doesn't bring chastisement and judgment on you. It says, don't do this. And it lets the chips fall where they may, so to speak. If we don't heed the standard of the law, there is a natural consequence. Now, you could apply this to all manner of things. Is the law condemning you in this instance? No, it's mourning. Apply it to the husband-wife relationship. Husbands, go on and ignore God's demand for you to love your wife. See how that works out for you in the long run. Not very well. Disharmony in the home. You're not displaying Christ to your wife. There are, there are side effects. There are consequences to that. Wives, don't su submit and respect your husband. Is the law going to condemn you and is, is it going to bring chastisement on you is it, is it no you, it, it lets things work their way out and there are there are consequences in your home and a lot of times what you'll see folks listen carefully you see marriages that were like this and they go like this why they violated the law the law told them what to do grace could have enabled it the recipient of that or the the theoretical recipient of that grace ignored grace's ability to bring that law to pass. And so there's a rending of a relationship and people going in two different directions. No harmony at home and many times divorce, many times broken homes, many times a lot of resentment, a lot of problems. Why? The law told you what to do and you said, eh. Or maybe you tried real hard to do what the law said and you found no ability to do such a thing. It's because you didn't surrender to God. See, the Spirit always enables what God demands. This is what we understand grace to be. Apply it, this principle to your work situation. The Bible tells you all about how to, how to live as an employee. Don't apply the law to your work situation. Guess what's going to happen? Probably not anything good. 
probably, if you don't treat your employer properly, you'll probably find yourself on unemployment. And pretty soon that'll run out and you'll be on the side of the street in a box hoping that someone will help you. Why? Well, the Bible told you what to do. It's law. Well, I'm not under the law anymore. So I don't have to obey my, obey my employer. All right, good luck with that one. Try it out. The law won't say, I'm going to bring judgment. The law will let reality take place. All the while, God's grace could enable a father not to provoke his child to wrath. All the while, God's grace could enable a husband to love his wife, to care for her, to lay down his life for her. Absolutely. It could enable a wife to reverence her husband, even if he is a bum. Yeah, it can. It's called grace. Grace is not your ability on steroids, because that would still stink. Grace is God's ability. It never fails. Apply grace to our, our work environment. Guess what? The law will be fulfilled, and you'll do just fine in your work environment. See, the law is not exempt. We're not done with the law. It's just no longer slavishly over us. It's no longer holding us accountable. It just it tells us what we need to hear. And we either heed it by grace or we don't. Anywhere there's a command in Scripture, we have law. Do the demands, do the, do the requirements of the law make us holy? No. The law has never made anyone holy. Never. Not in any time frame of, of God's world. God's grace, on the other hand, listen carefully, God's grace produces both the standard, that's the law, and the fulfillment, first and foremost, in Christ. And secondly, in the life of the believer. Grace brings the standard, and grace brings the fulfillment of what God's standard is. By grace we stand right in the eyes of the Lord. Listen by grace, our standing is demonstrated in our daily life. Now, I've said listen about 17 times so far. I really think this is important. This is why I'm spending so much time on it. Listen one more time, and maybe for the next 10 minutes. We are no longer under the enslaving tutelage of the law. Rather, listen carefully, it serves us. It serves us by evaluating if we are operating in the power of God's grace. You look at God's word and you see what it says. It's not, okay, I see what it says, I'll go do it. It's, God, I need your help to do this. And whenever you see it fulfilled, well, you can know, God, you're at work within me. And consequently, every time you violate what it says, you can say, ah, here I am taking control of my life again. God is not controlling me. Because when God controls me, it looks like that. See, grace enables the most beautiful holiness. Grace enables the most beautiful righteousness. The only righteousness that's real. The only holiness that's real. It comes from God's ability, not ours. This is why we surrender to him. And as Paul is talking to us here in Galatians 4, he's telling us, okay, because God has adopted you, he's made you an heir, it's wonderful, you're an heir of all things, you're no longer under the, the enslaving tutelage of the law, that doesn't mean the law doesn't have a place in my life. 
It is a beautiful place in my life. I should love the law. Why? Because it shows me when I'm operating in my own flesh or surrendered to my God through his spirit. The law demonstrates righteousness. Justification by faith in Christ has resulted in an eternal inheritance and a changed relationship with the demands of Scripture. All right, third, third blessing. This is going to be fun, I think. It's going to be fun for me anyway. We have been adopted as sons. Now, we could look at lots of Scripture passages about this, and you would have information reiterated that you already know. I've chosen a different path. We have been adopted as sons. Look what it says again in, in this passage. We've, we've read it, um, but let's, let's read it again. Verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We need to really gather the significance of this. God speaks of Israel as his firstborn son in Ephesians 4. God calls um, Israel his son as he calls Israel out of Egypt in Hosea chapter 11 and then applies it to Jesus in Matthew chapter 2. God's special relationship with Israel connected Israel into a special relationship with Jesus which gives them that sonship place. Jesus is the only begotten. Jesus is the beloved son. And Israel as the firstborn is connected to Jesus. And you know what the Bible does in the New Testament? It connects us with Jesus, the firstborn son. It says we are sons. So we see this concept of adoption. And God is connecting us into this very same special relationship. I thought... The best way for us to really gather the heart of this text, rather than just the head of it, is I wanted to show you some pictures. Forgive me if I struggle through this section. I wish, you, I wish this were a little clearer. That's, that's crazy. I mean, delightful uh, Aiden and the boys, little boys with a little dog, and my three oldest just growing up. I love these kids. This is Aiden on his first day going to Buttonwoods, his Buttonwoods school. And then we have Asa on his first day going to his Buttonwoods school. And Asa and Addie. Of course, he's sucking his fingers. No, no shocker there. And um, I don't know what he's doing with that piece of pizza. <laughs> They're growing up. They're just these, these tender things, these memories. I, I went through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pictures just trying to get the feel for what it is to be a child connected to someone that you love. Now, there's no picture of any individual in this. I don't have to even know which of my children because I, I know who did it. I love him. He's a contraption boy. But this, this is his handiwork. Um, and then there's this one. Uh, I don't know, this, this is Aiden again. I'm not really sure why he has a piggy bank at the door of the church, but I think he may have been charging a head charge to come in. 
quite ingenious. Uh, well, there's Aiden on a trip to Louisville. Uh, there were some others with him smiling as well. They were a little shorter then. This is that my boys in the, a work truck with me had enough to deliver some good old Italian food. Can't go wrong with that. And this actually, when Drew was less than three, going to work with me in the, in the big boy truck. Very happy to do so at 3 o'clock in the morning. I don't know if that, is that, is that the end of it? That's, that's the end of those pictures. Why, why did I show you pictures of my kids? Well, because I like them and everything. And I know you like them. I didn't do it to show off my kids so much as if, if, I, if, if I could line up like from baby pictures all the way to where they are now, and just think about, about your connection with them and how you're invested in them and how you love them and you care for their uh, mental well-being and their physical well-being and their spiritual well-being. They're my kids. Couldn't love them anymore. And this, this is what God says. I've made you my sons. I made you a son. I watched you from when you were conceived in the womb. I knew you before then, before the foundation of the world. I knew you. I watch you as you grow in the womb from a, an embryo. And I see your structure in the womb. And I, and I hold your, your life together before there was even one day. I knew all the days of your life. This is what God does. He knows me. He knows you. He doesn't just act to us like this despot in the sky as if he is detached and uncaring. He's adopted you as his son. And this text is letting us know the blessing of sonship, that God has not simply just rescued me as a benevolent God and let me go. He's taken me from destruction and said, you're mine. I will hold you and I will care for you and I will make sure you get where you need to be. Everything I've begun in you, I will complete. This is our God. This is what he's done for us. He has made us his sons. Can you get better than this? Do you have this intimate relationship with him? And do you realize the blessing? As I look through the pictures of my children, I think back on fond memories. I think of how they've changed. I think about their growth. I think about their future. I think about their future spouse. I think about their children. I think about their eternity. Is there anything about them that is insignificant to me? Nothing. Is my life intimately tied to them? Yeah. Now God has chosen out of all his gracious benevolence to adopt you into his family. What a blessing. Count your many blessings. Name them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. He's made you an heir. It's great. I've got a blessing. I've got all these things coming forward. It's wonderful. No longer under the slavish tutelage of the law. Instead, I can look at the law and say, that is a gracious gift to me so I can see when I violate God's standard, when I can see that I'm not walking in the power of the Spirit. I can see that I'm not reflecting Christ as I ought to. This is a gracious gift. I'm so thankful that God has given me the requirements of the law. And God says, ah, I'm not just a lawgiver. And I'm not just a rescuer. 
I am a sovereign and intimate Father. And I send my spirit into your hearts. And he cries out through you, Abba, Father. Real, intimate relationship that is unending. This is the blessing. So next week, when we address this section again, we'll look at the fourth blessing. And that's we've been given the Holy Spirit. We've been given the Holy Spirit. We want to see how all of that works its way out. In the course of the daily grind, we can be ground down. We can lose perspective of the blessings that are ours in Christ. Our lives are brimming with blessings through our relationship with Jesus Christ. So, have you come to understand that there is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ? If you have come to trust Christ as your Savior, these blessings are yours. These blessings are mine. But only if we've trusted Christ alone for our salvation. Are you destined for an eternity in heaven? Justification by faith in Jesus Christ results in an eternal inheritance. It results in the eternal meeting of the standards of the law and an everlasting relationship as a son of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you. We've, we've been celebrating Thanksgiving. Some people have traveled away. Some people have traveled here. We've been celebrating Thanksgiving. We want to express our gratitude for houses and cars and clothes and food and health and life and breath. We want to express thanksgiving for family and friends. We want to thank you for materially providing for us. We want to thank you for our mental well-being. Yes, 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 all these things. But, but we want to thank you for you. We want to thank you for grace. We want to thank you for mercy. We want to thank you for for sovereignly, lovingly, kindly reaching down into this scarred, dark world, rescuing us out, and not just freeing us from bondage, but, but actually adopting us as your children, loving us, connecting us to Jesus, giving us a future that is sure, and perfect. We pray that you'd help us, help us not to be weary, help us not to be ground down by the difficulties around us, but to rejoice in all you've done, and that through that, others would see your glory, that we would show forth the light of your kindness and love and mercy, and others would come to know Jesus as their Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.